Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Help to buy scrapped amid a looming housing market slowdown. Marketization of landmark buildings takes a twist with some questionable projections. Camden Highline submitted for planning as calls for a pedestrian first city grow. And the Platinum Jubilee in architecture. Does the reality of Thomas Heatherwick's Tree of Trees live up to the renders? My name's Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau and Design District is Will Jennings. Will is editor of Recess Space, director of the charity Hypha Studios, and teaches architecture at UCL Bartlett and Greenwich. Welcome to the show. Hi Merlin, thanks for having me on. Uh, first time caller, uh, long time listener. The government's Help to Buy scheme, which allows first-time buyers to secure a new build property with just a 5% deposit, is being scrapped five months earlier than expected in a move that's been branded as disgraceful by former Conservative leader Ian Duncan Smith. The scheme, which was launched nearly a decade ago by then-Chancellor George Osborne to help invigorate a weakened housing market and house-building industry still reeling from the financial crash, has so far handed out an estimated £22 billion of taxpayer funds. Homes England, the government branch that handles the programme, changed its online guidance to bring forward its final deadline for applications to the 31st of October earlier this month. This move has not been well publicised and was first picked up by the Sunday Telegraph nine days after the news was briefed to developers, and it was then later reported on by The Guardian. At the end of 2021, government figures show that just shy of 356,000 properties have been purchased with the help of the equity loan, one element of Osborne's scheme. Uh, That equates to a combined total of £99 billion of residential real estate. Since Help to Buy's introduction, the UK average house prices have increased by more than 10% to £274,000. Research has shown that more households earning above £80,000 a year made use of the scheme than those earning below £30,000 a year. Meanwhile, since the year 2000, the total stock of social housing has shrunk by close to 500,000 homes, indicating a gulf in support for those least able to afford long-term secure housing. So, Will, what exactly is the Help to Buy scheme? Uh, What did it look like back in 2013 when Osborne first launched it? Who can access it? And um, how has it evolved over the decades since? So, in effect, it's a government support um, to buy a first property. And there were slight variations to the scheme. And I think it's a bit different in Scotland and Wales. 
But in principle, the main path of Help to Buy, and I think the one which has been running for the whole decade, is, and I quote, through an equity loan of 20% of the property value, which is interest-free for five years, uh, which here in London can go up to 40% of the value, buyers must have a deposit of at least 5% and then fund the remainder themselves from a traditional mortgage. However, it was limited to new build properties and then a maximum cost of £600,000 in England. And as you say, house prices have, have shot up in the 10 years since. So over year one, it supported a purchase of a fifth of the new homes which were sold that year. And it had an apparent secondary effect of pushing mortgage lenders to offer higher loan-to-valuations ratios back to that 90% that we remember, you know, sort of before the first boom uh, which Osborne was there to, to watch over um, and bust. So it's been running for nearly a decade. And over such a long duration, what really does this five months premature ending really matter? Well, I mean, mainly it largely matters to those first-time buyers who are thinking of buying in the next year or the next few months, and now they're having to either change their plans or they suddenly can't do it. Um, but really, the biggest story, I think, is the subtext and the politics underneath it. Because with this government, we seem to be watching this sort of sad end of a, a boxing match where one competitor is knocking the last lights out of a sad, defeated opponent. But here, there's only one boxer, and they're kind of doing it to themselves pummeling their own head and self-flagellating in the ring. And they're just trying to distract us with brioches and dead cats and a million and one things to distract us from Partygate and the real underpinning cracks like the housing crisis. So this one, five months over 10 years is a lot, but the fact that it seems that the government has instructed developers not to let the public know um, until they're going to announce it, I think speaks just to how... This government runs its lack of transparency, lack of respect for the citizenship and kind of a lack of trust with us as well. And so, Will, what's been the effect of this scheme on home ownership and house prices in the UK? And why has this policy been so divisive over the past decade? There has been a lot of criticism of it. Um, and I think even the Help to Buy scheme sort of has adopted this nickname, which is called the Help to Sell scheme, because it's become so wrapped up in this perpetuation of the market of selling property um, more than like the functional governmental service of helping citizens actually have a secure home and shelter. Um, and then I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is how it overlaps and intersects with other crises. We have so many going on, but the post-Grenfell cladding crisis, because this scheme was predicated upon new builds, which obviously really helped uh, certain development companies and certain mass house builders. Um, a lot of the properties, I think, have since been found to have been wrapped up in this substandard and fire risk cladding. So people that were encouraged to help to buy um, for a value they might be able to afford now are sometimes facing huge bills to reclad their home or in a sense of just existential kind of anxiety about this place that was meant to be offering them security. Or maybe their life has changed. They've got a job somewhere else. They've got a family they want to move and they just can't sell their house because it's caught up in this other issues. Um, and I think it's also worth mentioning there is now talk of rehashing the right to buy scheme, which I think you might have even talked about it on the podcast a few weeks ago, with discounts of up to 70% of property value. But that would also fold in housing association homes. And it speaks to, I think, the politics in this country, not even just the current party in charge, where we can't imagine new ideas or we can't actually invest or think about foundational issues. We can just rehash old ideas. We can just put some plasters over or put a new branding on top of something and not actually deal with, as you mentioned, the shortfall in housing of 500,000 houses in the housing stock. 
This week, the Financial Times posted an article warning of a projected slowdown in the UK housing market. It's a, a trend we're already beginning to see across the pond in the United States. Um, do you think this move by the government to cut short this policy uh, amid this slowdown risk and the spiralling cost of living crisis is perhaps an admission it can no longer keep the housing bubble afloat through subsidies? I think something that we don't ever look for in our current politics is long-termism, as I just mentioned. So all they're doing is thinking about what can keep us floating until maybe the election in autumn 2023. And then we'll get the next guy. or We'll worry about that in the next electoral term. So this idea of just postponing the crash, this idea of just making sure enough voters can get their house or to support us through the next election. And it's just that game, which I just find so tiresome. Um, as for the point of America, um, I wonder how much we can map American politics and housing development onto the UK. Um, the Daily Mail article that you mentioned said that Florida has seen the largest rises in 2022, especially in Tampa, Orlando and Miami. Now, I don't know if that's the Trump effect and oligarchs just trying to buy houses near to him to, to support his campaign for re-election. Um, I hope not for us all. In Florida and everywhere in America, there's a, there's a very different housing model. It's lots of often cheaply built suburban identical houses, lots of which are empty. And there's a whole business around foreshortening and flipping and buying and selling. And we're not there like that in this country yet, but we do have issues with housing. And, you know, if we keep going in the same direction, maybe we'd have a bit more um, similar mapping. So I don't know if we can necessarily say what's happening there will happen here a few months later. But it does show us what happens when you put so much power of the economy into a single market. And don't diversify it across all of the other sectors. You know, the, in Britain, the cultural sector supports between 10 and 13 billion pounds a year. Uh, is the Dean Doris doing anything to support it? No, it's all just about housing and fishing and various headline grabbing things just to get us through to the next sort of electoral position and actually nothing which supports us, I think. And it's also worth saying that the right to buy scheme, which had been running since the 80s and sort of is coming back. 40% of those right-to-buy houses are now owned by landlords, not by the people who live in them, um, which, again, maybe speaks to a certain type of voter that they want to encourage or people that want to own more than one property. Um, but it doesn't necessarily build us up to a uh, even a house-owning electorate, let alone an electorate with an affordable roof on their heads. So new polling data from the New Statesman uh, has indicated that nimbyism is actually on the decline in England, with opposition to local house building cooling over the last two years. Obviously, this coincides uh, with the Conservative government uh, doing a kind of big turnaround with the planning reforms. And Michael Gove, the new housing and levelling up secretary, announcing policies such as street votes, uh, changes in the planning reform agenda in response to things like the Chesham and Amersham by-election defeat. Um, could this shift in public opinion around nimbyism uh, and also economic fortunes possibly taking a term, turn for the worse signal that the time may be right for a new approach to house building, uh, perhaps one where the government takes a more active role in house building, for example, embarking on a national housing plan? Wouldn't that be nice? But I think that goes back to the idea that we would have a government that is thinking 10, 15, 20, 40 or 100 years in the future and not just the next election, which is probably next autumn. So, and also, you know, this, this information in this New Statesman article is really interesting and they they presented it in some really nice graphs and uh, diagrams to really sort of help try and untangle what this data might mean. 
And it does imply perhaps NIMBYism is going away, but I'm not convinced. I think Russell Curtis has been on this campaign about a car park in North London, I think you've talked about, outside a tube station, where people oppose the building of flats there because they still want to park their cars on the Sufus car park. And it's a perfect site for dense, good quality housing. And he wrote in the AJ, those in comfortable circumstances and with time to energy, time and energy to mobilise anti-development campaigns are seemingly rarely interested in anything other than preventing others from having a home. And so I think that whatever it suggests the new statements from reports suggest, it's not a movement that we're moving on from. And there was something interesting in there, which is people don't perceive the problem is where they are. So even 69 to 70% of social and private renters say that there is a housing crisis, but only 60% of them think it's where they live. And it's the same, it's even more with the private owners. So these people all agree that we all do, everyone listening to this, there is a housing crisis. But the problem is not in their community, whether that's in London or elsewhere in a village. And it, therefore, the solution has to be elsewhere. And I think that ties into the NIMBYism. So the other interesting thing to note is that affordability is the prime issue for most voters. Um, and it's not beauty, which the government have often been pushing, especially through previous white papers with Roger Scruton heading them up. So... How can we do affordability? Yeah, it's through national housing. It's through genuine mixed use. It's through stopping land banking. It's through opening up small sites as well as big sites. It's through changing VAT on building um, and renovating your home. Are we missing the point, perhaps, though? As for national housing, can you imagine Stuart Andrew, who is the current housing minister, if you knew his name, actually guiding this revolution of council housing? Will he become the new kind of hero we talk about in 100 years' time? I think it's unlikely because the current system is more about milkmaiding the market, just trying to squeeze more housing supply from the sort of limp udders, you know, this invisible hand trying to squeeze out value and capital from a, a failing system. Um, and we have these various games with local authorities. I live in Lambeth and you've covered on this podcast many times the issues of like Cressingham Gardens and Central Hill who have houses there they can refurbish them. The residents in them have plans to add more properties into the car parks. But instead, they become beholden to this neoliberal system where we have to sort of demolish and rebuild with corporate partners. So I don't know what happens. Do we need to hit the rock bottom before we clamber back up? Or can we kind of try and imagine a new future from this situation we have now? But it's increasingly hard, as you've talked about so many, many times on this podcast. Over the past few decades, activists and protesters have used some of the capital's most recognisable structures as canvases to bring key political and social issues to the attention of thousands of onlookers. You may remember slogans such as evict the government, no Trump and drop the debt adorning Nelson's column in the Houses of Parliament on the eve of Donald Trump's visit to the UK back in 2019. And more recently, you may recall the striking logo of Extinction Rebellion adorning the city at night. Now it appears that these inexpensive, non-destructive, provocative, not in creative public displays have not gone unnoticed by advertising professionals. Last week, the iconic Batsy Power Station lit up the London skyline with lightsaber projections to celebrate the release of the new Disney Plus Obi-Wan Kenobi miniseries. Elsewhere in the West Country, uh, another British cultural icon, the Bronze Age Stonehenge Monument, was also illuminated, this time quite contentiously with images of the Queen to celebrate her 70 years on the throne, as marked by the Platinum Jubilee. Uh, both stunts drew much attention on Twitter, with the former drawing largely positive comments uh, from onlookers, while English Heritage's attempt to commemorate the Queen left many onlookers puzzled as to its relevance. One disgruntled online pundit said, quote, 
it's kind of disrespectful to plaster the head of the Church of England all over a historical pagan site. While another added the projections made the ancient stones resemble a collection of commemorative cigarette lighters. So, Will, what do you make of these public projections taking over major landmarks? Are they a creative success or a gimmick in your mind? Both, I think. Um, I can't get that wound up about them because as soon as you turn the lights off, the Stonehenge is still there. Um, the building, which is behind us, returned back to what it was and we kind of all forget about them. I think, however, they do kind of speak to what London is becoming um, or has been, you know, really since the Boris Johnson period as mayor, which is a capitalist kind of playground of dull spectacle and diversion and fun. Big fairground attractions like the cable car, the Millennium Wheel and the orbit slide clad onto the side of it. And it's all we have now, these kind of selfie factories and kid alt craps of urban golf, urban bro stuff that, you know, isn't really for me what the city is about and it will come and go. We also had this week, you didn't mention the Shoreditch uh, pizza pop-up, a Stranger Things theme thing where you have to climb in through this hole in the wall to get a, a slice of probably limp overpriced pizza. But it's also not new. 55 years ago, Guy Debord wrote The Society of the Spectacle, which was all about this, about how politically, aesthetically and urbanistically we sort of give over to the jocular moment of the image being more important than like a sense of being or embeddedness or meaning. And that's how we end up with Boris Johnson as a prime minister, you know, because he's been on Have I Got News For You and he dangles from a high wire and he makes everyone laugh. And in Society of the Spectacle, there is a quote, which I think talks to this projection. Just as early industrial capitalism moved the focus of existence from being to having, post-industrial cultures moved that focus from having to appearing. And what's more about appearance and the appearance of something than a projection onto a building? And what do you make of this apparent crossover from protest to marketing? Do you think projections like these were an effective tool for charities and campaign groups in the past? And and what does it mean now that this method has been somewhat co-opted by the consumerist machine? Yeah, so it's not new. This has been happening since even before Guy Debord wrote those words. The activism, the ideas, the creativity, which is used to oppose something is very quickly absorbed into the system which it opposes and becomes often a method for promoting it and selling it. We see it with greenwash, we see it with artwashing, we see it with pinkwashing. Um, The idea that you can absorb the oppositionary forces and use them as a a power and that can be a, a media or an image or an approach just as projection is. I think some of them are quite good. They're usually fun. You know, the um the led by donkeys, it's fun. It's a nice little quirky thing to project on Houses of Parliament, you know, quotes from the Brexit campaign, which are now opposite and not happening. It's memeable, it's shareable, and, you know, it makes a momentary smile, but doesn't really change anything politically. I don't think so. I don't know how much money led by donkeys crowdfunded. I know that even a couple of years ago, I think they were marked down as the largest crowdfunded campaign in British history, political campaign. Did it change anything? No, we had a laugh about it. But could that money have been better spent on community organising, on a new kind of structure of community involvement, collaborative networking, getting people to know their neighbours and actually discuss these things rather than just scrolling on Twitter and looking at a nice photo projected? Probably, possibly, but it's not going to hurt anyone. As long as we get that one quick giggle, we're maybe not bothered about if it's going to really change anything down the line. 
So, Will, a topic that's close to your heart. Uh, in London, most other major cities across the globe, people are often inundated with advertising. Uh, but in recent decades, the property industry seems to have taken it to the next level with some very divisive and often just outright cringe-inducing messaging. Are marketeers losing the ability to speak to everyone? Well, maybe uh, they never did. Perhaps they don't even need to. Um, it wasn't many years ago um, that there was a new build development not far from here in Greenwich. And on the hoardings, as you mentioned, it had these pictures of um, a family on the back of a, a cart being led by a horse. Um, and it said underneath it, join the land rush. And it was so grotesque. This whole imagery about white colonizers coming into a place, discovering land as if there wasn't something there. Even if it was a factory which has been demolished, just people work there. If there's housing, if there's social housing, if there's existing pubs and cultures and communities, even if it's not what the developer wants, there is existing culture there. No land is new. Um, so this idea of joining the land rush, creating a new colony, discovering an empty land to kind of put your grid and tent down, I just think is so sad. But do they need to talk to everyone? Because actually, if they annoy 90% of the people by that, you, me, and the local people walking past, does that matter? Because they just need to talk to 2 or 3% that can afford to buy a house there and want to. And as long as that message hits those people, that's not a problem. A planning application has been submitted to transform a 1.2 kilometre stretch of disused railway into a pedestrian Camden High Line in New North London. Drawn up by a team led by US star landscape architects James Cornerfield Operations, the application was covered by BBC London News with a fly-through video on the 6 o'clock news and also by the AJ. The 11-member design team, which also includes Camden-based rising star practice VPPR Architects, won an international competition to design the High Line in February 2021. James Cornerfield Operations designed the original High Line in New York with Pierre Udoff, who's also working on this Camden project, and also with Dilla Scafidio and Renfro, the New York architects. Uh, the scheme's backer, the charity Camden Highline, has filed for permission for the first phase of the roughly £35 million linear park, which will eventually link Camden Town and its famous market via Camley Street to King's Cross. The current application covers an initial stage from Camden Gardens to Royal College Street. Running eight metres above the ground, this raised park will feature gardens and walkways, uh, along with seating areas, cafes, uh, arts and cultural interventions, spaces for charitable activities, areas for children's play, and a woodland balcony overlooking Camden Town. The application comes as Mark Watts from the influential C40's Climate Leadership Group published a landmark article making the bold statement that the single most important action cities can take to tackle the climate crisis, inequality and poverty, is to prioritise space for pedestrians and cyclists over cars. So Will, what is the Camden Highline? What will it look like if all the planning permissions go through and what do you make of it? Um, of the vendors make it look luscious and lovely as vendors always do. VPPR, as you mentioned, local, really good company. I have no qualms with their approach to it. They'll they'll deal with it really well and they understand the place and they have um, a good team of designers there. I think it's a bit of a shame it leans so heavily on the original Highline, not just in name, but also getting the same landscape architect involved. We have loads of fantastic landscape architects in the UK. You know, I teach in Greenwich and the Bartlett Landscape Architecture School. There's loads of young people who are emerging, going into practice with ideas, and they deal with things like this, about heritage and place and urban issues, not just about how to plant trees, but about the cultural rootedness of a place. Um, so it's a shame we have to go back to James Corner and all of these people. We, we have the quality here, and we don't have to call it the high line because it isn't the same thing. 
So in his mark, uh, in his article, uh, Mark Watts from C40 Cities uh, stressed the importance of pedestrianising our cities, not just to tackle the climate crisis, but also to address inequality and poverty. Uh, what will or won't the Camden High Line do towards achieving this aim? Yeah, I think that's a really important thing. It was a great article. Um, and I think I'm just going to read a quote from that article if your listeners don't jump in. He wrote, Jakarta is creating 2,600 kilometres of sidewalks with a minimum width of five metres to allow all people to walk comfortably, while Austin in Texas is completing its all ages and abilities bikeway network, which is a 400 mile connected network, enabling everyone in the city to travel around regardless of age or ability. We're building a high line. Like, it's not the same thing. Like, we could do something really rooted in London. I was lucky last week. Um, to have visited two of the most walkable cities in the world in the same week and had great fun, Barcelona and Copenhagen. They're both held up as these pedestrian-friendly, walkable, relatable cities. And then I came back to London, and as much as I love it here, it was just so immediate, that shock. For all we think that we've improved over the last decade, and we have put some good cycling infrastructure in, even Boris Johnson did some good things with cycling, um, we haven't really kept that going, and we certainly haven't kept up at the same level as what Mark Watts talks about in that article. Where is our 2,600 kilometres of new sidewalks and planting? So the Camden High Line, which is fun, and I'm sure it'll be nice, it costs £35 million. And I won't mention here the £53 million that was lost to the Garden Bridge. You know, £85 million all in. What could we have done to really embed some of the COVID low-traffic neighbourhoods into more permanent community-focused urban spaces, using local knowledge, like hyper-local architects who live on those streets, dealing with their neighbours, dealing with collaborative design, good landscape practices, proper um, rainwater runoff and ideas in the city, pedestrianism, cycling, community. They're doing it in Barcelona with the superblock model, Copenhagen wasn't like it is now just a few decades ago. They've completely changed. So it is possible. And this morning, before coming into the bureau building here, I had a little walk through Google Street View to see the streets around the High Line, to see how walkable or not it is at the moment, if this really is going to be solving a problem. And it's fine. It's walkable. It passes through a really nice mix of communities, different types of architecture. And I just think if those streets were given maybe three and a half million pounds, one-tenth of that budget, to put in planting, to put in chairs, to pedestrianise some streets. It could be really a nice model with embedded community planting, cycle pedestrian routes, and it'd be infinitely more exciting. It'd be future-proofed, and it would leave another 20-odd million pounds for 10 other communities to do something similar. So maybe we could just deal with what we already have, like the communities, the streets, the people, and invest in them rather than always trying to elevate above it or drop something in. Many of the same practices and people who worked on New York's wildly successful High Line are working on this project. Um, the New York High Line transformed the city in many positive ways. However, critics have also accused the project of gentrifying the last affordable pockets of the city and also pricing low-income New Yorkers out. Is there a risk that this project could spark a similar investment bonanza in Camden, uh, or will this really benefit everyone equally? Yeah, I've not been to New York, so I've not experienced the High Line, so I am one of those like critics from a distance, and I know it's been incredibly good in places. And what I did love about it was that it genuinely emerged from a community scheme. It was a redundant railway line that the community went out to have barbecues and parties and slowly they developed this idea. And then very quickly, it got sort of absorbed and adopted by big finance because those were the only people that could fund it. Those were the people who were, had interest in property development in certain areas where it landed, who had art galleries, who wanted to build hotels overlooking it, who wanted to build sculpture parks on it. And I think it from what I know about it, from my reading, it very quickly got sucked away from that community project into one of this hyper gentrification. 
Now, the other issue about the Highland, which I think might also relate to the Camden one, is that, as I mentioned, it flies over those existing communities and it only lands in certain places. So it has this uneven effect of distributing wealth and visitors that they might drop down in one area where there's steps and those areas might suddenly become the expensive new burger bars and the pop-up restaurants and the trendy, sexy places to be. But the arches or the bits in the middle aren't and they sort of get sucked into the shadow of it. So that speaks to my thing about maybe we should just deal with the existing context. Why can we not just work with the existing arches, work with the existing streets, and then people will just want to be in that area at a ground level and it will support a much broader part of the community. So I think it will support certain areas more than others. Um, as I said, I did a little walk over the site in Google Street View earlier. Most of those areas are fine. They're nice to walk through. It's existing communities. There's one big area um, towards the end. And if you get towards King's Cross, there's a few big development sites around there. And when it lands here, it's going to really help those areas. It's going to help with the marketing. It's going to help with uh, selling those projects. It's going to put a percentage inflation on the value of those properties and ideas straight away. I'm interested in this critique as well by um, a Londoner called Steve Chambers, who's a planning consultant and really interested in transport. And he cares. I think he lives around the area as well. And his simple question what he asked was, do they own the land? And they don't. They're renting the land or they're borrowing the land from Network Rail. Because the project has already claimed developers Section 106 money that could have supported local bus networks, urban greening, cycling, all of these things, it's primarily a place marketing project in which the trackside walkway is only temporary. It might have to come out in the future should Network Rail want to actually put the railway lines back on there, which arguably is the best use of a railway viaduct in a place where we don't have enough trains and enough public transport network. Um, so beyond that, are we just hung up on these vendors? I think we're going to touch on this in the next one too. Industrial infrastructure is not always an ideal landscape for this casual perambulation. It looks pretty in the pictures, but if there's a train running past you every four minutes, is that really going to be the idyllic walk through the park that we can imagine? Thomas Heatherwick's 21-metre-high tree sculpture honouring the Queen's Platinum Jubilee has been unveiled outside Buckingham Palace, representing probably the most high-profile architectural design specifically created to mark the occasion. Images showing the installation of the living structure dubbed the Tree of Trees were published in the AJ and Architectural Digest. It will be officially open to the public on Friday the 2nd of June as part of the weekend's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. The 21-metre-high attraction aims to reflect the, quote, joyful jubilee tree planting uh, taking place through the Queen's Green Canopy Initiative, which has seen more than a million trees put in the ground since October 2021. It's an initiative itself which has recently received criticism because many of its platinum sponsors, including McDonald's, the bank Coots, and the power company Drax, have all been linked to deforestation both in the UK and around the world. Meanwhile, politicians have leapt on the occasion to announce new policies marking the event, with Boris Johnson pledging a reinstatement of imperial measurements. So, Will, what do you make of the completed Tree of Trees? How does it compare to the renderings we saw a couple of months ago and discussed on this show? I haven't been to see it. I don't often find myself hanging around Buckingham Palace. I don't know if many Londoners actually intentionally end up there very often. Um, do I even need to see it, though? That's the point. I've seen the render. It's only going to be up for a couple of weeks. So really, the image of it, we just go back to the projection we're talking about. The image of it is arguably the purpose of it. The render of it is what's more important than the thing itself. Um, how it's mediated in the press, how it riffs off the Jubilee, how it presents the image of certain designers and people and politicians involved with it. 
I can't, again, it's another thing I can't get that angry about. I think what disappoints me, like with The Mound, is that we can just do better. There are great artists, there are great designers, there are great landscape architects and architects who have ideas to actually leave a legacy, to actually do something which is more than just a throwaway symbol. Something which, in the initial brief for this, I think Thomas Heverick said, and I'm, it's not a direct quote, but the value of something like this makes us think about being green. It inspires us to plant more trees. Just plant more trees. We know about this. Just be more green. We already know the problems. We don't need a massive steel pretend tree to remind us. Uh, as a piece of architecture and as an addition to London's public realm, how does the Tree of Trees stack up against some of the other Jubilee creations over the years, both past and present, uh, such as things like the Jubilee Line uh, and Jubilee Gardens on the South Bank? Yeah, I mean, it won't stack up. It doesn't need to. As I mentioned, it's not going to be there in two weeks' time. It's going to come down as quick as the lightsaber protection on um, Batty Power Station, all the strange things pop up. It's just, you know, it's a one-liner. But... As much as I know we've had negative things on this podcast and we can say pithy things about them, I want to always think negatively about things so we can think about what we can do better. So, you know, what have we done in the past that has been genuinely great and dealt with existential urban problems we had? We've built the Bazaljet sewer and the Victorian Albert embankments. We celebrated things with the Crystal Palace and Museumopolis and we left that cultural legacy. What are we doing now? Even I'm a critic of the Olympic Park and the Olympic Project in general, but, you know, we do have that park. It's imperfect. But it's there now, and it's a legacy project of some kind. There's nothing from this Jubilee that's real legacy. And we've talked about the housing crisis. We've talked about environmental issues, uh, insulation crisis. So Rishi Sunak has just announced he's giving a 91% tax break to UK oil and gas companies, giving them between $2.5 billion and $5.7 billion over the next three years. And it's expected that that will be spent in new oil and gas production, which as most of our energy we created in this country is exported and sold, I'm not sure how this uh, support for them is going to do anything other than just generate more income for them and actually not help with our own energy and economic crisis. Imagine, if you will, if that 2.5 or 5.7 billion equivalent was actually spent on insulating homes or creating new pedestrian cycle paths across the country. Damon Carrington in The Guardian recently wrote that £3 billion could insulate 2.1 million homes, making them less reliant on gas. And it just strikes me that that would have been a better legacy for this Queen, for this Jubilee, something equivalent to the Bazaljet sewer, but dealing with the issues of our day, just as that dealt with the issues of the 1800s. So we're now on to the culture section. Um, a quick addition before we get on with the other bits we've listed. Because uh, coming weekend is the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. So we had a look at uh, what's in store. Uh, Thursday uh, will involve the Trooping of the Colour, um, some pageantry and a military fly past in St. James's Park. Um, there will also be ceremonial lighting of the beacons. Not really quite sure where they are in London, uh, but it's something to look out for. Um, Friday is a... Uh, special derby at Epsom Downs where the Queen will be attending and then on Saturday evening is a concert in St James's Park outside Buckingham Palace it's going to have Alicia Keys Duran Duran and Craig David um, somewhat cool lineup. Um, Sunday itself is the big day uh, where there'll be the Queen's Jubilee pageant uh, and various other activities happening around St James's Park uh, also, over here in the Royal Docks, uh, next door to our office, which is at the Design District in North Greenwich, uh, is going to be the Queen's Baton Relay, uh, which is a big day of activities involving 
some ballet performances, a dragon boat race, and some some live music. So that's some pretty cool stuff to look out for. Will, are you planning anything big for the Jubilee weekend? Yes, I'm leaving London. I'm getting out. Um, I, I don't I don't want to see this flight past, and I don't really care what the big surprise. It's probably just going to be Gary Barlow or something, oh, yeah, yeah. something sad like that. So no, I mean if you're going to it, enjoy it. I like you know it. Not all cultures for everyone. Uh, I'm not a royalist and I'm not really a big fan of this kind of flag-waving culture. But if you love it, go and enjoy it and have fun. Yes, I think I might go for a cycle along the River Thames uh, with my bike. Um, Might even uh, uh, take it as an opportunity to sort of observe this uh, extraordinary landscape and how everybody's uh, responding to this momentous weekend. Uh, Might even make it all the way to Windsor. Uh, next up in culture, uh, the Zaha Hadid Foundation is holding its inaugural exhibition exploring the late architect Zaha Hadid's radical reinventions of London. Um, this is going to be held at the former headquarters of Zaha Hadid Architects, uh, Bowling Green Lane in Clerkenwell. It's opening on the 8th of June. Uh, it's a, um, a whole load of rare and unseen works, including uh, Hadid's personal sketchbooks. Um, seems like quite a momentous occasion uh, for London's architectural cultural scene. Uh, Zaha Hadid, the architect behind the London Aquatic Centre, also the Evelyn Grace Academy in Brixton, uh, who sadly uh, passed away much too young in 2016. Um, Will, what do you make of this? It's great. Um, you know, I, I'm editor of this project, Recess Space, and that's, we're particularly interested in that gap between art and architecture, and nothing speaks to that really more than Zaha Hadid's drawings. I have issues with some of the buildings, later ones especially, and how the company's gone. When you try and lock sculpture and ideas and fluidity into that kind of big concrete megalith like that. But her drawings and her paintings are lovely, and I haven't seen her sketchbooks, so that will be a joy to see them opened up and see her thought process in pen and pencil. Next up, we've got a big talk, which is happening at Birkbeck. It's called Life in Ruins, the Fetishization of Decay in Contemporary Architecture. Uh, the talk will be given by Tom Wilkinson, a recent former guest of Lundown. Uh, it's going to happen on, when, on the 7th of June at 6pm in the Keynes Library at Birkbeck. Um, it's a free event and tickets are available online via Eventbrite. Um, Will, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, fascinating. And Tom, obviously, is a... That's why you had him on. He's a great speaker and he's a great thinker about how architecture talks and speaks to all these other political and aesthetic issues. I got my ticket as soon as I saw that advertised, so I'll be there. I'm looking forward to it. Um, and yeah, fetishization of ruin, this is why the High Line kind of is, you know, reusing old industrial infrastructure. It's why Battersea Power Station sits where it does and is hemmed in by these kind of um, modern lumps of architecture. Um, but it's, I see there's a lot this week about um, ruin. And I just want to mention two other things, which I think really relate to Tom's talk, which is Cornelia Parker, which is on a Tate Britain, and her work about the exploding shed and squashing instruments and kind of this idea of ruining the function of an object and finding new functions. And also an exhibition coming up at Gagosian, which uh, called Haunted, Haunted Realism, which deals with Mark Fisher's capitalist realism and the weird and the eerie and hauntology ideas, which is... What haunts the digital cul-de-sacs of the 21st century is not so much the past as all the lost futures that the 20th century taught us to anticipate. So there's a cultural ruin in there. And we've got the physical ruins of architecture and we've got Cornelia Parker dealing with it in objects. And I think there's just all these three, three things happening at the same time makes for an interesting conversation. And finally, uh, two mentions from Open City. Uh, 
in the calendar coming up very soon. We have the second part of our Baylight Fellowship uh, taking place on Friday, the 17th of June. It's going to be exploring extraordinary examples of housing in central and east London, including Golden Lane Estate, Barbican Estate, Bonington Square, 56 Ferry Street and Span Housing in Blackheath. You really do not want to miss out on this uh, day-long series of tours and talks. Uh, And also a quick notice, uh, Open House's Festival Poster Competition. Uh, It's an amazing opportunity to design the official poster for the Open House 30th Anniversary Festival, which is happening in September, Um, is is open for entries. Uh, Please uh, get your submissions in before Friday the 10th of June. Will, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on the show. Uh, Where should our listeners go to stay up to speed on all the exciting things you're doing? And also, are there any social handles people should look out for? Um, So I'm on Twitter at WillJennings80. That's my personal one. But also, I have a website, willjennings.info, and that's where it can link to all the things I do. Um, Hypha Studios is a charity run where we put artists into empty spaces and also Recess Space, which is... A new project looking where art and architecture cross over, and you can find that at recessed.space. Thanks again, Will. It'd be great to have you on the show again in the future. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.